Well, good morning, Southeastern. It is an honor to be here. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. Thank you, Hutch, for the invitation to be here. It is a thrill to be here with Ben and Maddie. And um, Hutch actually grew up in the church that I now pastor. His mom is still a faithful member there, and I love Miss Betty Lou to death. And his mom and my mom are having a watch party right now. So hi, ladies. Thanks for, uh, thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you doing that. Turn with me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. As I was preparing, I was told I could preach on whatever I wanted. And God just kept bringing back Ephesians chapter 1 to my mind, to my heart. And I'm not particularly sure why, because who in the right mind comes to a seminary and preaches Ephesians chapter 1? But there's something about this text that I think will be an encouragement. I pray that it is. I was recently on a mission trip to southeastern Arkansas, and as part of that mission trip, we went into a prison. Now, we were told it was a minimum security prison, and we were just going to go in and do a worship service and then come out. But when we arrived at the prison, it was a prison that had tall stone walls, probably 12 feet high, with razor wire on the top of it. We had to go through a typical screening to get in, taking all of our things out of our pockets, taking our belts off, going through an, uh, a, a checking, make sure we didn't have anything where we were supposed to. We went through this gigantic door that they slammed behind us. And we're in this passageway with just another door. We walk through the other door and that door then opens and slams behind us and we're in this, just this gigantic hallway. We make our way through this giant hallway down to this common room and we're told the inmates will start coming in and in a few moments we're going to have worship together. Well, I didn't have an assignment that night. I wasn't preaching. I, wasn't, I was just there to encourage. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do my best. I'm going I'm to meet whoever comes in. I'm going to say hi to them. I just want to make them feel welcome and come in and feel that, that there's somebody there that cares about them. So the first man that walked in, tats all over him, beard down to here, he looked like a rough dude. I walked right up to him and said, I am so glad you're here. You really don't want to tell a prisoner who's in prison that you're glad that they're there. He looked at me like, what are you talking about? So I'm hoping I don't put my foot in my mouth today as I did on that day, but I am glad that you guys are all here this morning. Have you ever lost your way spiritually? Have you ever just been, you're living your life when all of a sudden you recognize, what am I doing here? How did I get here? Maybe you've gotten caught up in a, in a particular sin that has just gotten a grip on your life and you can't break free from this sin and, and you know it's not God honoring, but you just, you just can't seem to, to get out of the pattern of that sin and you think, how did I get here? Maybe you allowed yourself to enter into a relationship with somebody who does not love the Lord or serve the Lord as much as you do, and through that process, you've allowed yourself to compromise some of your core convictions, and you think, how did I get here? Perhaps as a, as a student, you guys are blessed. You are in a, one of the, the greatest seminaries in the world, surrounded by godly people, and, and maybe there's a student here that 
even though you have this wonderful opportunity and you're here and you know you should be thriving in this environment, you're just, you're just struggling, just trying to make it from class to class to class. And you wonder, how did I get here? You might be a professor who's in the same situation. You, you love your students, you love the Lord, but it just, it's become almost drudgery at times to get up and go into the classroom. I, have you ever wondered, how did I get here? Have you ever lost your way spiritually? Someone once wisely said that if you lose your why, you'll lose your way. If you forget why you're doing something, it will be easy for you to stray away from that which you should be doing. And so we begin to ask ourselves, why should I act like Christ? Why should I live a lifestyle that is godly? Why should I love others? Why should I study to show myself approved? Why should I put up with the petty problems of the people that are around me? If we lose our why, many times we'll lose our way. I bring this up to you this morning because in nearly 40 years of ministry, I hear this constantly from brothers and sisters in Christ, that they are struggling to remain faithful, that they're struggling to do that which they know God has called them to do, and they're not exactly sure why, and so their response to that, and the response that they're often encouraged by the church is to just try harder, or to just do more, or to just put these four practices in place, and you will do better. But the honest truth is, many times, we just need to return to our why. We just need to remember why it is that God has called us to do what he has called us to do. Whether you are a minister, a missionary, or a member of a church, it will be exponentially more difficult to remain faithful in Christ if you don't remember why you ever started being faithful in the first place. I believe this is the heart of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. He is wanting them to live a life that is worthy of the calling with which they have been called. In fact, that's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have just been called. We've just heard that this morning already. Walk in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner worthy. You say, I want to do that. I want to be found faithful. I want to remain faithful. But sometimes that's difficult. It's hard. Paul says, therefore. Well, Ephesians, as many of you I'm confident know this already, can be divided into two sections. The first three chapters are deeply theological, telling us about who God is and what God has done on our behalf. The last three chapters, chapters four, five, and six, tend to be more practical in nature. This is what you do with the information that you have about who Christ is and what he has done for you. These are the things you should be doing. But before he gets to chapter four, 
He spends three chapters reminding us of who God is and what he's done for us. Before the first imperative is given in chapter four, there are three chapters of indicatives, three chapters of statements of truth about who God is that Paul is just reminding us. Before you start trying to live a life worthy of the calling, remember what that calling is and remember who has called you to it. And so this morning, I believe that God just wanted me to bring this message in order to encourage some of us to just remember our why so that we don't lose our way. If you're willing and able, would you stand with me and read with me as we read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray, please. Father, we are often tempted to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and begin with the do's. This is what I need to do. This is what I need to be. But Father, I pray that today we would just slow down and just immerse ourselves in in Ephesians chapter 1 so that we can be reminded of who you are, so that we can be reminded of what you have done for us, so that we might be reminded of our why, so that we won't lose our way. God, thank you for this amazing text. Open our minds that we might understand it. Open our hearts that we might believe it. Open our lives that we might live it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Now, there are two things that I have to admit as we approach this text this morning. The first is this, I've bitten off more than I can chew. There is absolutely no way that I can completely do this text service as we gather here today. In fact, if, 
every preacher and teacher who is invited to come to chapel for the rest of the semester were to teach from this text. Pastors and teachers who are are more gifted expositors and communicators than I am, if we were all given this text, we would not find all the gold that is in this vein. So the first thing is I'm not gonna be able to do all of it. The, the, The second thing there's just so much. It's just so rich. It's just so fulfilling. And we could approach it many different ways and and be faithful to the text. It is all God-centric. It brings us to the focal point of our lives. It brings us to focus on him. We, We could look at it from the aspect of the triune Godhead. It tells us about God the Father in verses three through six, and then it has this refrain to the praise of the glory of God, of his grace. It tells us about God the Son in verses seven through 12, and then it has this refrain to the praise of his glory. Then it tells us about the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14, and then it ends with this rephrase to the refrain to the praise of his glory. We can learn about the triune Godhead. We can learn about soteriology. We can learn about salvation and God's sovereign plan for salvation from eternity past to eternity future. It is here in this text. We can learn about the atoning sacrifice of Christ and how he redeemed us with his blood. We can learn about eschatology. We see that there is a mystery that is going to be revealed in the end times where Christ is seated above all and all is taken and put under his feet. There are so many different ways to approach this text. And yet I just simply want us to walk through it and just be encouraged this morning. Encouraged about who God is and what God has done. There's plenty of time for imperatives. When we get to chapter four, the imperatives roll. These are the things that you need to do. Walk in a manner worthy. Be careful to protect the unity of the spirit and the power and the bonds of peace. To utilize the spiritual gifts that we have. To speak the truth in love. To grow up into him who is the head of the church. To do away with your old ways to let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, to not grieve the Holy Spirit. Be kind to one another, forgive one another. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Husband, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Children, obey your parents. Servants, serve as unto the Lord. Put on the whole armor of God and stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Chapter four through chapter six, there is imperative after imperative after imperative. But in chapters one through three, it is just stand and be in awe of who God is. And that's where we begin. Anchored in this fixed point of God and his goodness in our lives. He tells us, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul, one who was called out and sent with a message, not by his will, but by the will of God. Paul, the missionary, Paul, the church planter, Paul, the evangelist, Paul, the discipler, Paul, the apostle, is writing to a group of people. And he gives us 
some ways that we can identify these people. He says, here's who I'm writing to. He's writing to saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul's writing to saints. The word, you may be familiar with the word, is hagios. It, it, it simply means to be set apart. It's the word from which we get holy. If you have a sanctuary in your church, it's called a sanctuary because it is sanctified. It is set apart for a particular purpose. He says, I'm writing to those who have been set apart for a particular purpose. The root word of hagios is the word hagos, which is a word that means an awful thing. And the only difference between being an awful thing and being a holy thing is Christ. The only thing that sets us apart isn't what the Catholic Church tells us that a saint is, is someone who is dead, who did great works in their lives, perhaps even performed miracles. Now they're canonized in the church. That's what the world thinks of as saints, but that is not what this word means. The word doesn't mean dead people. It means those who are faithful in Christ, those who have been set apart, called out of the world, called out of darkness into light, called out of death into life, called out of separation into adoption. He's saying, I'm writing to those who are saints, holy ones, who God has called out of the world and set apart. And he set you apart for a purpose, set you apart for a reason. He says, you're at Ephesus. Now, some older manuscripts don't have at Ephesus or in Ephesus. Many believe that this was a circular letter intended to be not written and read only by the church in Ephesus, but the churches of Asia Minor. But he's saying that they are notified by their location. They are saints who are in this particular location. And Paul was very familiar with Ephesus. He had spent three years in ministry in Ephesus. You can read about his ministry there in Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20. He knew what it was like to try to be faithful in Christ while living at Ephesus. But their physical location is less important than their spiritual location. He says, while you're at Ephesus, you are faithful in Christ. He says, it doesn't really matter if you're at Ephesus or at Wake Forest or at Tampa or at school or at home or at work or at the hospital or at the unemployment line. What's more important is not where you're at, pardon the bad English, but who you're in. You're in Christ Jesus. This is a phrase that Paul loves. This phrase, in him, in the beloved, in Christ, he uses 11 times in these 14 verses. He uses it 35 times in his book, in his letter. And he's wanting them to understand who they are from God's point of view. How God sees them. You are saints. I have set you apart. Yes, you live in Ephesus, but you are in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 3, he tells us that we have died and our lives are hidden in Christ. There's other texts where Paul will tell us to put on Christ, where Christ has, we've been clothed in Christ. 
An amazing thing happens when you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. When you recognize that God is holy and that you're sinful and that nothing you can do can make you right with a holy God, so God did what we could not do for ourselves. He put our sin on his son. Christ died in our place, taking our punishment upon him. And when we place our finished work, our our faith in that finished work, there is a transaction that takes place. God takes our sin and he puts it on his son. And he takes his son's righteousness and he clothes us in it. He wraps us in it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that you and I might be the righteousness of Christ. Paul is just writing to a group of people and he says, do you know how God sees you? Do you know that when God sees you and you've placed your faith in Christ, he no longer sees the old Bob, he now sees Bob wrapped in the righteousness of his son. I'm no longer in Adam, I'm in Christ. I'm no longer dead, I'm alive. And when God calls us into this relationship, he's not calling us into a relationship with a distant God. He is calling us into an intimate relationship with a holy God through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to know that you are in Christ. You are united with him. This theme is a theme that's gonna run throughout the letter of us being united with God through Christ, but it's also a theme where he takes it and he says, not only are you united in Christ, but Jew and Gentile are united together in the church in Jesus Christ. This is a great mystery that has become revealed. And so even as we find strength in being united to God in Christ, we find strength in being united in one, with one another in Christ in the church. And then he finishes the salutation. He's only said hello so far. He finishes the salutation in verse three, grace and peace to you from God the Father and Jesus Christ the Lord. He says, I wanna pray a blessing over you saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ. I know what it's like to live in Ephesus. I know Ephesus has that temple to Diana, that temple to Artemis. I know that it is a pagan place. I know that it is filled with idolatry. I know that it is a stronghold of magic and dark spirits. I know exactly how hard it is to be a faithful follower of Christ where you live. And he says, I wanna pray a blessing over you. Here's the blessing. I'm gonna pray what you need, grace and peace. Here are the two things that you are going to need no matter where you find yourself, no matter what ministry position you find yourself, whatever mission field you find yourself in, you are going to need God's grace lavished on you and you're gonna need the peace of God. The peace that comes from knowing that you're in Christ. A peace that comes that knowing that you're right with God, that you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I want you to have grace and I want you to have peace. And then in verse three, he celebrates. 
There's a celebration in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Paul says we just need to stop and bless God for a minute. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed here is the word which, from which we get the word eulogy. Have you ever been to a funeral? Uh, we call them celebration of life services most of the time now. But whenever there is a funeral, usually someone offers a eulogy. And a eulogy is just words of commendation. It is saying nice things about the one who has passed away. I've never, I've done hundreds of funerals, never been to a eulogy where somebody said negative things about the person that passes away. Even if they are the worst so-and-so you've ever met in your life, they always come up with nice stuff to say. This is what the word means. He says we need to eulogize God, not because God is dead, because he's very much alive and we need to say great things about our God because he is God and because he has blessed us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. Now when we bless God, it's different than when God blesses us. When we bless God, we're just pointing out good. When God blesses us, he's pouring out good. And he says we need to bless our Father who has blessed us. And then he makes this audacious statement. It's a bold statement. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has blessed us. He has poured out his goodness on us in the heavenly places. This is a phrase that Paul uses five times here in the book of Ephesians. It's not used, as far as I know, anywhere else in the New Testament. He said, God has blessed us with spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Spiritual, I don't think, as opposed to material. Spiritual because of the source of the blessing. It comes from God and it comes from this eternal realm, this, this realm that is a reality that we cannot yet see. It is where Christ sits next to his father in heaven reigning. And he says, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. In chapter two, verse six, he says, do you not recognize that when God sees you, you are already seated with Christ in heaven. That you have been raised up and seated with Christ in heaven. You say, yeah, I know one day I'm gonna be there. One day that's gonna be my reality. One day I'm gonna close my eyes, I'm gonna open them up, I'm gonna be in heaven, I'm gonna see my savior, I'll be, and he says, no. When did he give this? He says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says, you need to know your situation. You need to know positionally right now, God sees you as if you're seated right next to him with Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would know that. Oh, that we would embrace that truth. Oh, I'm not practically perfect, but positionally, I am in Christ and I am seated with him in heaven. And God has given us not some spiritual blessings, He's not given us a few spiritual blessings. He's given us every spiritual blessing. He has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. It's not like 
we're not faithful because we don't have everything that God has for us. It's not that we don't have things, it's that we don't utilize the things that we have. God has already given us everything we need. My wife Darlene and I, a few years ago, got into cruising. Now, we'd never done this before, but in the last few years, we, we enjoy going on cruises. We live in Tampa. There's a cruise port right there. Ships go in and out, so, so we go on cruises every now and then. Don't, it's not that fancy. We don't go a lot, but every now and then we go on a cruise. And if you've ever been on a cruise, they're, they're a lot of fun. It's just a floating vacation. But if you sign up to go on a cruise, then you gotta buy, if you want Wi-Fi, you gotta pay for Wi-Fi. If you want a soda package, you gotta pay for the soda package. If you wanna go on an excursion, you gotta go on an ex- you gotta pay for that separate. So it's not included in the, uh, but food. You, you can eat all the food you want. And it's, there's, there's a restaurant that you can go to and you don't just get to order what, you can order all the, it's a menu. You can, I want one of these, one of these, one of these, and two of these, and they'll bring it to you. And if you don't like the restaurant, there's a buffet that you can go to, and it's open all the time. And on top of all that, there is a soft serve ice cream machine that is open 24 hours a day that anytime you want a piece of some ice cream, you just go get it. Now, when we first went cruising, we, we didn't know all of this. We didn't know that you could just go to the restaurant and order all that you wanted. We didn't know that there was a buffet, that everything was there. So imagine if we went on this cruise and we took ramen noodles with us and microwave mac and cheese, and we sat in our cabin eating microwave mac and cheese when there is a buffet completely available to us. And many of us, we have all these spiritual blessings available to us. It is all there. It is all free. It is all available. We're just not utilizing everything that God has gotten for us and already given to us. He has given us these things. You guys need to listen faster so I can get through what I want to try to get through this morning. How do we get in such a situation? How do we find ourselves in a situation where we're in Christ, we are seated with him in heaven? It's as if we are already there. How do we get to such a situation? How do we get to such a prime location? Is it because of our nature? Is it because God looked at us and go, well, they're pretty good? No, the Bible says that by nature, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Is it by merit? Have we earned it? Have we earned our right to be there? No, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. So how did we get there? The Bible says God chose us. He chose to save us. Out of the good intentions of his will for the glory of the Father, he chose to save us. It's not by works, it's not by nature. He chose to save us. And when did he choose to save us? When is it that God chose to save us? Was it when, when young Ryan Hutchinson was running around First Baptist Church and he looked and he said, well, that guy's got potential. I think I'll save that one. No, when did it happen? It says before the foundation of the world, before he ever created the world, God chose to save. Why would he do such a thing? Why would he do such a thing? Because of his great love. 
God should give us what we deserve. You know that, right? We should get what we deserve from God. And what do we deserve with our sin? Separation. We deserve death. And yet God, out of his goodness and his grace, forgives us. The starting point for most people, as you talk to most people, the starting point for most people is man is primarily good, and if we don't get to heaven, God is somehow wrong in not letting us go there. That's where most people kind of start their conversation. But that's not what the Bible teaches us, is it? The Bible doesn't say we're all basically good and we deserve heaven and God's wrong not to send us there. No, the Bible says we're all sinners. We deserve hell, and out of God's grace, he allows any to go to heaven. God has chosen us to the praise of his glory. Uh, Verses seven through nine, we see the blessings of God the Son. I've got to move quickly. I want you to see this. What was the vessel that God used to provide this grace in our lives that did not deny his holiness and his justice, but demonstrated his love and his mercy? The answer is grace says that we have been redeemed by the Son. We've been given forgiveness of sin. Redemption is a church word. Very few people use redemption outside of the church. You might redeem a coupon. That's about it. If if some of the professors in the room my age and older, you probably remember S&H green stamps. Collect them as a kid, you put them in a book, you go to the redemption center and you could get stuff back. Most of you has no idea what that is, but you know what Chuck E. Cheese is. And you know what Dave and Buster's is. And you know that you can play a game and get those little tickets and then you can go to that case and it's got all those prizes inside. And you go, I want to redeem that. I want to give this for that. I want to buy that with this. The word in the first century just meant to be bought out of slavery. He said, do you not know you've been bought with a price? Do you not know that you have been bought with a price? And what was the price? It was the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says that that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And we have not been redeemed by the blood of a ram or a bull or a goat. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation chapter five, John is standing in heaven, receiving this vision of heaven. And there God sits with a scroll in his hand. And one of the angels cries out, who's worthy to take the scroll out of his hand? And they said, no one, no, no, no one. And John begins to weep because no one on earth or in heaven is worthy to take the scroll out. And one of the elders says, John, don't weep, look. And there next to the throne of God, the Bible says, was a lamb standing as if slain. And they all began to cry out, worthy is he because he laid his life down for us. What's my Why? My why is God loves me so much that he chose me. My why is God loves me so much that Christ died for me. To make me that which was awful, a hagas, into that which is set apart, a holy thing. And here's the even better part. Verses 13 through 14 tells us about the Holy Spirit who summoned us 
He said, you heard the gospel and you responded to the gospel. Ephesians tells us that salvation comes by grace through faith and that not of yourself. It's a free gift of God. God opened your mind, opened your heart. Chapter two says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive. The Holy Spirit opened our heart to hear the gospel. And then it says it sealed us. The Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee. All of these good things, I'm seated in heaven with God and one day that's gonna come true. I'll have an inheritance in heaven with Christ. That's all gonna come true, not because I hold on to it. Not because I'm faithful, because Christ through the Holy Spirit has sealed me. He's put his signature on me like Toy Story where Andy put his name on Woody's boot. God has written his name on you. He's claimed you. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that. Have you ever lost your way spiritually and wondered, how did I get here? What am I doing here? Oftentimes we stray because we forget our why. We lose our way. And today I don't know who needed to hear this or if anybody did. But sometimes I just need to be reminded of my why because it's easy to lose my way. Robert Robinson wrote about it this way in his classic hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it. Mount of God's redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger brought me with his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and reminds them of their why, in chapter two, he begins to pray for them. And he says, I pray that the eyes of their, the eyes of their hearts might be opened so that they would understand the hope of their calling, so that they would embrace the riches of their inheritance and that they would know the power of God's might in their lives. And so, Father, my prayer over Southeastern today for each of these students and the faculty and the teachers and the professors and the, the missionaries that are here, the members of churches that are here, the ministers that are here, Father, I just pray that you would open their hearts and minds in just a simple way, just reading your, your word today to be reminded of our why, that the Father has chosen us, the Son has redeemed us, and the Spirit has sealed us. God, let them know the power that's available to them as they walk faithfully in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.